you're listening to the CC Solicitors Podcast with Colleen Cleary, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. Welcome to CC Solicitors Podcast on COVID-19 and gender discrimination. And what we're going to discuss today are what issues arise for women in the workplace. And perhaps one of the most notable things about COVID-19 is how successful women leaders have been in tackling this issue. If we think about Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, Nicola Sturgeon, all of them have been kind of complimented for their decisive, firm and effective action. And this got me thinking about things. And when I was looking into this issue, I came across a report by Dr. Jessica Doyle anticipating the gendered impacts of COVID-19. And in this report, they reference some really interesting issues around what the UN has, has spoken about previously, that the inclusion of women in political and policy decision-making is important, not only because it is central to gender equality and women's rights, but also because it has benefits for society. And it got me thinking a little bit as well about our own situation. And while we have an excellent team in place in the Taoiseach, the Minister for Health, the CMO, the HSE clinical officer, it is notable that all of them are, are men. And I suppose with the exception of Dr. Catherine Motherway, who's the president of the Intensive Care Society of Ireland, that a woman's voice in the context of this crisis is noticeably lacking. And again, considering all of that, it got me thinking about the gendered impact of COVID-19 and how it might impact specifically on women. And I think there's going to be some upsides and downsides, certainly, which are coming to the forefront. And really, that's what we're going to be discussing in the context of this podcast today. I'm joined again by my partners, Claire Dawson and Regan O'Driscoll. And Regan, just turning to you first, what do you think about this? Do you think there's any kind of positives uh, from COVID-19 and the impact of the situation that we currently are in, specifically for women? There are some potential uh, positives here. I think, as you said, the world leaders, uh, the female world leaders have been notable in how successful they've been in tackling it, um, often being more decisive, um, acting more quickly more effectively than their male counterparts. Um, so, I mean, and, and it's, you know, there's been several articles and that has been noticed by uh, lots of people. Whether this will do anything in terms of uprooting assumptions about women's ability to lead remains to be seen. You'd like to think it would, though. It, it seems that it should. The other thing in terms of sort of practical changes and practical positive developments is that, you know, for years, many employers have resisted flexible working arrangements, working from home, often applications for which are often brought by female workers, particularly after they've had children. Um, employers have resisted it for a number of different ways, saying things can't be done flexibly. Uh, you know, the job can't be done three days a week, four days a week. It can't be done from home without necessarily actually, in, in our experience, looking into whether that is the case. Um, and, you know, the only, I suppose, our, our view would be the only reasonable explanation for this is that there is an inherent distrust of that uh, application that employers think that particularly women, once they've had children, are just going to sit at home and, and um, deprioritize their work over their families. In reality, of course, what we've seen is that increasingly women are becoming the main breadwinner in a family. And so they're, they're hardly in a position to deprioritize their work. In fact, they have to work harder. Uh, and are more incentivized to work harder in situations where they have children to provide for. So here we are, and, and this, this grand experiment of home working of flexible arrangements has been forced upon employers, in fact, by COVID-19. And there's been, you know, as we all know, a massive rush to provide working home um, or home working facilities for employees, getting desks up to speed and laptops up to speed, etc. And it seems to be working. Now, obviously, when the dust settles, uh, there'll be, a, I suppose, a, a, a more scientific uh, review of all of that, but it seems to be working. People are working from home and they're managing it. 
So what, what we would like to see after this is that there will be a more philosophical view by employers into whether their employees can actually do this uh, and that the world will become more flexible and that that can only be good for female labour participation going forward. Uh, again, we, we don't know, but it seems it'll be difficult for employers after this to turn around and say, no, 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 we, we, you know, this doesn't work in circumstances where it has worked. Thanks, Regan. And I suppose not everybody can work from home and certainly there are jobs and in retail and hospitality mm. where simply people can't work from home um, and in that context, a number of those employees are now on layoff or um, are receiving pandemic unemployment. Um, and Claire, from your perspective, how do you think women specifically have been impacted in relation to the layoff process? That Again, it's, it's a very unusual process. It's very specific to the pandemic situation. It's not like a typical layoff pre-COVID. Uh, perhaps you could just reflect on that for us. And any observations yeah. you have around that? Yeah, sure. I think one thing to note when it comes to looking at temporary layoff or a reduced working week, so people going on to reduced working hours, for example, is who's making the decision about who gets laid off or who goes on to a shorter working week and, and what criteria are being used to make that decision. Because if the whole workforce or an entire category of workers is being laid temporarily laid off, that's one thing. But where employers are picking and choosing then I think there is really scope for discrimination to creep in to those choices unless they're doing it very mindfully and they're using fair and objective criteria for it, whether that's on the basis of the type of role that the person is in or other criteria. So, you know, my thoughts on that are that a woman who's just returned from maternity leave could be an easy target. She hasn't been around for a year or nine months, so she may be somebody who's easily selected to be temporarily laid off. There may also be assumptions made about who wants to be temporarily laid off mm. if they have childcare responsibilities at home because the schools and the creches are all closed, as we know. And there may be an assumption made, a stereotypical or uh, gender-based assumption made about who's going to be looking after young children and, and that perhaps women would prefer to go on to a reduced working week as opposed to men. And I think the other thing to think about there for women who are actually asking to go on to reduced hours, for example, or suggesting that they'd be happy to be temporarily laid off, is for them to think about where that could lead further down the line if their employer does end up having to make redundancies. So I think it's it's just something to bear in mind that that if you're not visible, if you're not working, or if you're seen as less valuable, then that could end up uh, that could end up having an impact on the decision around redundancies, even even though that may not be fair and that may in fact be discriminatory. And what do you think about that, Regan? You know, potentially if being a woman being or people being put on on layoff or um, reduced working week, does that make them more of a target? Do you think for potential redundancy? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is with this is that, you know, there isn't really a body of case law around layoffs uh, because they just haven't featured in as big a way as they do now. So uh, thinking about it, you know, it's analogous to the, the kind of case law you see around selections for redundancy. Obviously, you know, there's a clear link between those. It's just that previously when we've had uh, the last recession, for example, the decisions that were being made were more permanent. At the moment, there's kind of a holding pattern. But the decisions are on the same, or the potentially on the same basis or set bases and will have the potentially the same outcome. So you might see an employer when, you know, everything is over and they look at their financial bottom line and realise they have to make some permanent changes in terms of reduction in workforce, looking at the people who are kind of gone 
and, and saying, well, we don't need them. And a similar thing does happen uh, when women come back from maternity leave, because again, they've been gone, they're not visible. They've, the office has learned how to do their job without them, for good or for bad. Despite the, the law being there to protect their return, there is a kind of, a, oh, well, you know, the replacement is doing fine. Do we have to actually uproot everybody again? And do, do we have to have this kind of trauma in the workplace of returning everything to where it was, you know, maybe up, you know, nine months to a year ago? So similar thing does happen there. That, and the other thing is, is that where you're out of the workforce, and of course, obviously, this is going to depend on the type of organization you have, but where you're out for one reason or another you're less profitable. So, you know, if, if an employer is making their decisions on the basis of balance sheets, the person who's out, who's not there, who's not earning, is going to be hit harder than people who are in there. There's a visibility issue, but also it's just a, it's a figures issue. So similar to maternity leave, again, you can end up being prejudiced by, by your absence. And the, I suppose there's still a there's still a selection criteria that employer will need to go through. I mean, despite the fact that someone's on layoff, it doesn't mean that automatically the employer can move to make that person redundant fairly. It does appear that there doesn't seem to be the same amount of selection process that has gone into layoff because, like we said, this is quite a unique position. But I think you probably agree, Regan, that you still need to go through that selection process and employers are going to need to sense check their processes in the event they move from layoff to to making a, a a legal decision to terminate an employee and to be conscious and aware of the potential gender impact and how perhaps unfairly the female part of the workforce may be more unfairly impacted by that. Absolutely. I mean, I think careful employers will be fine. You know, the ones who actually took care of their selection at layoff stage. Um, now, obviously, there's a kind of an urgency issue and some you know mistakes may have been made. All the more reason why when it comes to um, if they end up having to make uh, you know, redundancies that they they kind of go back to first principles and say, okay, well, why are we selecting people and what are the implications of this, whether direct discrimination or indirect discrimination as a result of the decisions I'm making now. Uh, if you've been careful in terms of the selection criteria you've used when laying off people, it, it probably won't be as big of a job when it comes to redundancy, but you should still go back and look. Um, I, you know, I think employers can sometimes think redundancy is get out of jail free card but no, the, you know, the things can arise that can cause difficulties for them, particularly, obviously, on the equality side. Yeah. And in our experience, obviously, COVID-19 doesn't extinguish those legal and statutory rights that still apply. And, and the process that needs to be gone through in the context of redundancy, that employer comes up with an objective, fair selection criteria that you know, is to do with the business and, and not to do with the gender of the, the particular individual. So in your experience at those, well, Regan, how do you think the courts have approached this subject in the past? Well, there's quite a body of case law on it. There are a number of ways in which it comes before the Irish employment um, bodies, that being the, the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court. Uh, you know, I suppose probably what's most relevant to the current situation uh, or maybe most relevant is cases where people are selected for redundancy, where they're pregnant or returning from maternity leave, there was a recent case, a marketing director versus a telecoms and communications company, where a marketing director who announced her second pregnancy was made redundant less than, or about two weeks later, where the person who had, her male colleague, who had actually originally been brought in by the employer to provide maternity cover during her first maternity leave, was kept on. And the employer was never able to sufficiently explain this to the adjudication officer. Now, you're never obviously in the room for these hearings, so it's hard to know why this, why whatever the employer said wasn't believable, but uh, the adjudication officer wasn't satisfied. Uh, and even though 14 other people were terminated 
on the same day, the the employee it was found that there was a problem here, and the and the employee received an award as a result of having been selected for redundancy in those circumstances. So what we find is that there are more cases like that than actually reach hearing, and a lot of them settle partially because of the optics, and partially because you know, you know presumably the employers being advised by their lawyers that they're 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 not going to do well before the WRC or the the labour court, as the case may be. So the, the other type of cases we see, which involve gender and family status discrimination, uh, tend to be around where somebody it returns from maternity leave, it just like that lady did, but uh, rather than being made redundant, they're, they're basically sidelined, where they are a senior employee who had uh, people reporting to them and their membership of leadership teams. Suddenly that's taken away and they're, they're doing sort of, you know, clerical duties, data entry uh, even though their titles and, and, and their salaries haven't been impacted, in reality, they've been demoted. Uh, this obviously doesn't go down well in the WRC or the Labour Court either. And employers have been criticised and awards have been given to employees as a result. Um, and, and, as, and this is something we see fairly commonly. A lot of these cases, as I said, settle. Uh, it happens far more frequently than um, people are, are aware of. And, and you see that when it does happen, people, you know, the, the employee in question is always shocked having coming, you know, been out of the workforce for a year or up to a year uh, and already feeling very kind of insecure about all of that, then they get all their seniority taken away from them. It can be, it can have a very severe impact uh, on their self-esteem and on their careers, obviously. Um, the other thing we see is, is uh, sometimes employees announce their pregnancies. There suddenly performance issues rise where none had before, uh, whether rightly or wrongly. I think there is an element of an employer thinking, oh dear, I'm never going to get rid of her now. I better start attacking her performance before before it's too late, before she's on maternity leave. But that hasn't gone well for employers either because, you know, there's a clear issue there where somebody tells their employer on a Monday, I'm, I'm pregnant. And on the Wednesday, the employer says, well, actually, you know, you've been doing everything wrong. Uh, it's very hard for an employer to dislodge that, you know, big shining light of, of discrimination or the, the, the word discrimination uh, suddenly comes into play. And even though they mightn't, an employer mightn't feel themselves that that's what they were doing, it's, it's very difficult for them to actually argue their way out of it. Um, so yeah, it does not go well for employers, generally speaking, in the WRC or the Labour Court. And both bodies tend to be quite good at, I suppose, looking behind the stated situation to look to see is there at the, at the root of something, a discriminatory purpose behind an employer's decision. Yes, and I suppose the test really is like if whether the employer is able to give a reasonable explanation for any of the actions and that they're able to rebut effectively the presumption of discrimination. Yeah. And, and Claire, you've acted for many senior female executives uh, who have who faced difficulties in the workplace after falling pregnant and returning to work. What's your take on this being a, a really serious issue for women often in senior positions? What's, perhaps maybe just give us your top three issues that women face in your experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because there's, there's a lot of women who've been very successful in the workplace, have never experienced in their eyes any overt discrimination of any kind. But it's remarkable the number of women who do experience issues around a pregnancy, going on maternity leave and then making the return from maternity leave. And I think it's less likely that you would simply be dismissed while you're pregnant or on your return from maternity leave if you're a senior person. That, that happens a lot to more junior people and it still can happen to senior people. But I think the main thing that, that I would see, and Regan touched on this as well, is that when a woman returns from maternity leave, things have changed. And it may be that they end up in a role that is lesser or reduced 
or perhaps it's a kind of sidestep into an area, a sideways step into an area perhaps where they don't have as much experience or knowledge and therefore they're in a position where they can quite easily be undermined. So that's one of the things that happens. And it might be off the back of, let's say, a restructure that happened while they were away. I, I think the other thing that we all see quite commonly is that the maternity cover ends up taking on the role of the the woman who was on maternity leave. And it, it's a very tricky dynamic for an employer to to deal with because there is somebody who may have done a role effectively and well for nine months or a year when somebody's been on maternity leave. And then the question for the employer is, well, what do I do with that person when that in, when the individual comes back from maternity leave? But of course, the laws are there to protect women who have been away and to give them the right if their job still exists and where it's reasonably practicable to, to come back to the job that they did before they went off. And, and we just see quite often that, that in practice, that's not what's happening. I think the third trend that I would see, uh, particularly for senior women, is that when they come back from maternity leave and they ask to return to a flexible working arrangement. So they say, well, I'd like to work four days a week or I'd like to work four and a half days a week, but compressed into four days, or I'd like a day from home to accommodate childcare. They, they're then told that a person in, in their role, somebody who is as senior as they are with people reporting to them, et cetera, can't work four days a week. Um, and often that is, you know, I think Regan touched on this earlier as well. That's kind of a blanket response that's given. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of thought that's gone into it or, or any real analysis of why it wouldn't be possible for a woman to do a, a senior role four days a week. Sometimes the answer that's given, and I was just talking to a client about this this yesterday, sometimes the answer that's given is, well, when people report to you, they need to be able to get hold of you five days a week. Uh, well, that's true, but people also take annual leave. Um, people might be busy in meetings or at networking events one day of the week. So that in itself doesn't seem like a great uh, a great reason. But those are some of the things that I've commonly seen. Thanks, Claire. And we're discussing the, the gender impact of COVID-19. And I suppose we could probably reflect the last pandemic we had was in 1918, which I, I think nearly derailed the women's suffrage movement in the US. So what about the, the gender pay cap, Claire? I know you've done a lot of work on that and we've discussed it on a number of occasions. You know, where does the pandemic leave us in the context of, of the gender pay gap legislation? Well, I mean, it's interesting because um, obviously the gender pay gap uh, information bill was due to be enacted last year. We all thought it was going to come into force towards the end of 2019, uh, but it didn't. And now it seems to have gone on a bit of a back burner, which is what happens to pieces of progressive legislation often when a, a country is facing an economic crisis or some other kind of crisis. But I think it's really important that the government does make it a priority to bring this piece of legislation into force. Um, it means that employers, initially employers who have 250 or more employees, will have to report on the difference in men's and women's pay based on their gross hourly earnings. Ireland's gender pay gap last reported was 13.9%. And I think the experience in the UK where they have had gender pay gap reporting over a number of years now is that by shining a light on the issue and focusing on it in relation to specific organisations who have to report what their, their gap is, is that it actually forces employers to look at the reasons for the gap, if there is a gap. And it's that idea that uh, what gets measured gets managed. 
So I think it is going to be important that we continue to to look to the government to move ahead with passing that legislation into force and then making the regulations that are going to come from it, which will give employers the detail that they need to start reporting on and when they need to report. Because at the rate we're going now, there's a danger that the first deadline for any reports coming through could easily be 2023. So it's, it's, it's pushing things back. Yes, and that would be certainly be a pity. I think we've the three of us have spent the last 18 months probably dealing a lot more with a number of sexual harassment allegations. And, and I think what we found um, in those circumstances and given our experience today is that women are much more ready to challenge and call out discriminatory behaviour in a way that they didn't previously. They would have let things possibly slide. And we are going to be doing another podcast on remote hearings and, and progressing hearings and investigations on a remote basis. And we will deal specifically with that, those types of issues as well. However, um, I would like to thank everybody today for listening to our podcast. And I look forward to having our next podcast very soon on workplace and remote investigations. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the CC Solicitors podcast. For more information or to get in touch, visit ccsolicitors.ie.